Father, it is good from time to time just to be still and know that you are God. You've given us those words of wisdom in your scripture that the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be still before him. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that one of the things that you do is that you can quiet our souls. So much going on around us in the way of turmoil on the world stage, in, the, in our nation. Schools are starting and there's all sorts of turmoil concerning the rules and regulations and all this uh, pandemic stuff. And everywhere we look, there's just commotion. May we be still. I'm so thankful that you are the calmer of our souls. So teach us this morning to focus on that which is absolutely essential. To let go of that which is peripheral and to really be in tune with you and what you want to teach us from your word. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. How uh, easy is it for you to um, let your priorities get all out of whack? I mean, you know, you, you've got your priorities. Here's something I, know, I need to do. It's really important. I'm going to get at it. And you, you know, you set out to do it. And before you know it, you're off into all sorts of sidetracks and you know you're doing this when you should not be doing that and, and you're just following all these little paths and and suddenly you realize no this is not what I'm supposed to be doing but for the life of you, you can't remember what you're supposed to be doing you ever have that experience Welcome to my world. I mean, that's kind of where I live a lot of times, you know. Uh, my greatest need in my life is to get those priorities and stick to them and stay with them. Well, we're going to look today in God's Word uh, at uh, a situation, that kind of a situation among God's people. We're looking at the prophet Haggai and uh, his call on the Jewish people for them to check their priorities. So if you have your Bibles, look in the book of Haggai. And if don't be ashamed to look in the table of contents at the front of your Bible, find the page number and find Haggai, okay? Uh, there's nothing wrong with doing that, okay? Uh, you do have these passages of Scripture, uh, for those of you here in the worship center, in your notes, and uh, they're also going to be on the screen as well. And for those of you at home, uh, you'll be able to, to, to follow along with that. But let's start in Haggai chapter 1 and verse 1. And we read this. On August 29 of the second year of King Darius's reign, the Lord gave a message through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, there are three people that are mentioned, first of all, in this verse. Let me just touch base, kind of introduce these to you, because that's essential. <coughs> Haggai was God's prophet. And what we're going to find out in this book is that he received four different messages from God that he was to deliver to the people. Uh, and he was writing in the year 520 B.C. 
And I say that because for, for Haggai, he went to great, uh, great effort really to date these messages very precisely, starting with the very first message that was delivered on August 29th of the year 500, uh, 520 B.C., and then the last message was given on December the 18th in the same year, 520 B.C. <clears throat> now, other than that, we know very little about the prophet Haggai. Uh, you, you know, based on a few statements that are given in the book, one of the things that we might surmise is that, <coughs> excuse me, that uh, Haggai was an older man at the time of these prophecies, probably in his 70s uh, at the time. Uh, and most likely, he had been a resident of Jerusalem before the destruction of the temple and, and had seen the magnificence of Solomon's temple before it was destroyed. Uh, some Bible scholars even say that Haggai probably was one of those few people who were left in Jerusalem when all the rest were carried away into Babylon. Now, we don't know that for, for certain, but uh, there's some speculation that's there. Then he mentions a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel probably was the grandson of Jehoiachin, who was the second to last king of Judah before it fell to, to the Babylonians. And at the time of Haggai, Zerubbabel was the appointed governor of the district of Jerusalem that was made up of those people who returned from exile in Babylon. And then there's Jeshua, and he was simply the high priest who helped Zerubbabel uh, lead the people. So Haggai's message comes directly to him from God, and it was directed to the Jewish people living in Jerusalem who had been given the responsibility by, by uh, Cyrus the Great to rebuild the temple. This was a message that was given to uh, a weary, discouraged, and really self-indulgent community, and it called on them to a renewed commitment to the priorities that were far more important than their own uh, personal mundane things that they thought they needed to accomplish. And so I think in this book, there's going to be two important messages that I want to zero in on as we, as we look through these, these, uh, these stories. First of all, let's give you the background of the book, because I think the context is going to be essential for really understanding the book. As you're aware, and we've talked about this throughout the summer, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah found themselves as pawns in a, an ongoing regional struggle between the powers of the nations around them. Uh, vying for who's superior and who's going to run the world, you know, and that kind of thing. Started off with the Arameans, and their capital city was Damascus. And for a while, they were the superpower on the scene. Uh, they vied with uh, the, the kingdom of Assyria with their capital at Nineveh, and they fought continually who's going to dominate the region. Finally, the Arameans kind of faded into history. The, the Assyrians put them down and became the superpower in that day and time. And it was while the Assyrians 
Assyrians were in power, that uh, they invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and uh, basically wiped that kingdom uh, off the earth and deported all the people. And those 10 tribes of the north kind of just disappeared into history. And uh, very little is known about, about what happened to them after that point. And so then the Assyrians began to dominate over the southern kingdom of Judah. That didn't last very long because then comes a new superpower on the scene, and that's the Babylonians. And the Babylonians actually are going to come in and they're going to defeat the Assyrians uh, and uh, become the superpower in the region. And in the year 605 BC, uh, the Babylonians have been uh, exercising influence over Judah. But in 605, that influence made its way into conflict. So King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies invade Judah and lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. And in 605 BC comes the first wave of deportations. Some of the leading citizens, the nobles, uh, the scholars are carried away into captivity into Babylon. A young man by the name of Daniel was in that first deportation to Babylon, who later became, you know, the, the wise man and wrote the book of Daniel. Then in 598 BC, a second wave of deportation happened. Another group of people were deported out of Jerusalem and out of Judah uh, to Babylon. In that wave, the priest prophet Ezekiel was taken from Judah and ended up in Babylon. Then finally, in the, in the year 586, Jerusalem was destroyed, was destroyed by the Babylonian army. And in that destruction, the final group of people were deported. Uh, and in that final group of people, uh, oh, excuse me, they, they were deported and there was a remnant who were left in Jerusalem, just a small kind of caretaker bunch of people. And in that group was the aged prophet Jeremiah. So that kind of gives you some, some history to figure out where all these guys kind of figure in, okay? <clears throat> so what you have left in the ruins of Jerusalem, I mean, what you've got to have left in that whole history of that era is you've got a large portion of the community that was dead, either, uh, you know, was dead because of the result of the conflict with Babylon or a portion that was in exile in Babylon where their freedoms of religion were very limited. The destruction of the temple probably was for those who survived, who saw the temple being destroyed and then were carried into exile or who were still in Jerusalem among the, the ruins of the city and all. The destruction of the temple was an unpleasant reminder of the spiritual failures of the nation of Judah. I mean, its absence would be in a painful metaphor of the religious and the, the moral condition of the community itself. Finally, in 538 BC, King Cyrus, Cyrus the Great of the Medes and Persians. Now, what has happened? Okay, in 539, the Medes and the Persians invade Babylon and, and Babylon as the superpower falls. 
And now it's the Medes and Persians who are on the, uh, on the scene. Many years later, it will be the Greeks who will overthrow the Persians and then the Romans. And, and so on and on and on it goes. It's very interesting to see the rise and fall of empires throughout this whole period of history. So King Cyrus in 538 BC issues a decree allowing the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem and giving them permission to rebuild the temple. His <coughs> whole thought was that strength is gained in helping these people that we've conquered to feel normal. And so he allowed them to return to their religion and to exercise their faith in Jehovah God. And so the rebuilding of that temple, starting in probably 537, 36 uh, uh, B.C., is really described in, in detail in, in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 7. Listen to this. It says, Then the people hired masons and carpenters and bought cedar logs from the people of Tyre and Sidon, paying them with food, wine, and olive oil. The logs were brought down from the Lebanon mountains and floated along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa, for King Cyrus had given permission for this. The construction of the temple began in mid-spring during the second year after they arrived in Jerusalem. The workforce was made up of everyone who had returned from, from exile. And then in the book of Ezra, he begins listing the names of all the people or the groups of people who returned, uh, who were working on the wall or who were supervising the rebuilding. Verse 10, he goes on, he says, When the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and took their places to blow the trumpets. And the Levites, descendants of Asaph, clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord, just as King David had prescribed. With praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good, his faithful love for Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. But next occurs something kind of unexpected. There was opposition from the enemies of, of Israel. It came in the form of harassment, but it also came in the form of political uh, intrigue. And as a result of that, the workers in, in, who were rebuilding the temple became discouraged, and they stopped working. And it would be 16 more years until the work of rebuilding the temple in, in Jerusalem uh, <coughs> were to be, uh, were, would resume. It was at this point that God's two messengers of Zechariah, and we're going to look at Zechariah uh, next week, and Haggai came on the scene as God's spokesman to the people to encourage them and to challenge them to finish the job of rebuilding the temple. And so Haggai is going to come along and he's going to deliver four different messages uh, that are contained in this book. And he's really going to be talking to the people about their priorities and their absolute need for that temple to be rebuilt and, and for them to be obedient to God by rebuilding the temple. And so through his preaching and through the, the, the preaching of Zechariah, as well as through some legal maneuvering uh, that took place by the leadership of, of Jerusalem, the work was started again in 520 B.C. and was completed, according to Ezra chapter 6, on March the 12th in 515 B.C. This is the second temple that will be, that will be completed on that date. 
This temple will last from 515 B.C. all the way till 20 B.C. when Herod the Great begins to refurbish and rebuild the temple, what was called Herod's Temple. It was going to take 46 years to rebuild it. Herod the Great, of course, was the Herod of, you know, Matthew chapter 2 when the wise men came and inquired of King Herod and so forth. So you see the length of this temple, almost 486 years from the time it was built until it was rebuilt by, uh, <coughs> excuse me, by uh, Herod the Great. I want us to just look at two of the messages of, of Haggai. Uh, in this book. Now let's start with the very first sermon uh, or, or speech by Haggai because I think there's some takeaways that we can gain from this book and I want to just mention two. So Haggai chapter 1 and verse 2 says this, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies say. The people are saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now <laughs> that verse kind of summarizes the attitude of the people. You see, it's no longer about enemies and opposition. Now it's about priorities of the people, some what I would call misplaced priorities. They're saying it's not time to finish the building. Um, but Haggai the prophet thought different. You know, he, he thought that the temple was absolutely essential for the people, and it should be their first priority. So listen to what he says, beginning in verse 3. Then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruin? This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. Now, go up into the hills, bring down timber, and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You hope for rich harvest, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruin, says the Lord of heaven's armies. While all you are busy building your own fine houses, it's because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I have called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all your other crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. <laughs> now, let's stop for a moment and let's have an excursus. Excursus is a a Latin word that means a diversion or a digression. In other words, it, you stop and you want to give a little further explanation on something. In other words, what I'm going to do is I'm going to chase a rabbit, okay? That's what excursus means, okay? Um, so if you want to be smart, just say, let's, let's have an excursus. That sound good? All right. Let's ask the question, why did Haggai feel that the temple was so central, centrally important? to the nation. In other words, why was he pressing that this ought to be their priority, that they ought to do this quickly? Well, see, for Haggai, the Jerusalem temple was absolutely central in the, in the religious life of the Jews 
during that post-exilic period. For Haggai, the temple was nothing less than the house of the Lord. You see those words there in, in verse 2. And then in, in chapter 1 and verse 14, in the New International Version, it says, they came to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. Uh, in chapter 2, it's going to be called the Lord's temple. And then in verse 9 here in chapter 1, from the very lips of God, it's called my house. So this was an important structure in the life of, of the children of Israel. Look at verse 8. It, it's in the rebuilding of this structure that the Lord, quote, takes pleasure, end quote. And it's the one place that his name will be greatly honored. In chapter 2 and verse 7 and 9, you know, God promises in the future that he's going to fill this temple with his glory in such a way that the splendor of this second temple will be even greater than the splendor of the first temple that was built by King Solomon. See, for Haggai, the, the temple held tremendous theological significance. Uh, <clears throat> this is where God chose to associate himself with his people in a very unique way. And, and a corollary to this belief was really the conclusion that the temple should be given appropriate respect and commitment on the part of the believers in the Lord. I mean, think about it. Because of its central importance in the religious life of the, of the Jewish people in Old Testament times, we would not be out of bounds uh, to say that for centuries, it's the temple that actually helped define what it meant to be Jewish. So the temple... <laughs> excuse me, was absolutely essential to normal Jewish life in the Old Testament. And without the temple, think about it, it would be impossible to fulfill certain functions of the Jewish religious system. That of offering the, you know, the requirements of sacrifice, that of corporate worship together. And furthermore, there's a plethora of Old Testament verses that, that uh, talk about the temple as being a special place where the Lord resigns. It was his unique, according to the wording of Psalms, his unique resting place. Now, what I'm not saying is, here is that the faithful Jews in the, in the Old Testament period had the, this notion that God could entirely and exclusively be contained within a temple or a building. Uh, that was clearly not the case. The Jewish people understood that God was everywhere. But even Solomon, who initiated the building of the very first temple, said this in 1 Kings 8, 27, but will God really live on earth? Why, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. But again, what I want you to realize is the temple was the defining center of much of what Old Testament Judaism was all about, both from a religious standpoint and, for that matter, from a national standpoint uh, as well. And so for that reason, the Babylonian destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. no doubt produced a level of religious despair and, and really emotional confusion on the part of those who experienced it far more than you and I could ever begin to comprehend how terrible this, this destruction was uh, to, the to the people. <coughs> Excuse me. This, this smoke in the air is just eating my lunch, probably for you too, okay. So with Cyrus's decree to uh, rebuild the temple, 
the Jews have returned to Jerusalem and uh, they're getting ready to rebuild it. And, you know, the construction began. They got the foundation laid and then it got shut down. It just stopped all of a sudden. And so here's Haggai and he's trying to convince the people that the reconstruction of that demolished temple should have been a major priority if they ever dreamed of life returning to normal if they ever really dreamed of their nation being restored, it should have been a number one priority. But here's this ruins of the temple. Yeah, the foundations laid, but the rest of it is all scattered around. Um, and it probably became a source of ongoing embarrassment for the Jewish people to think, man, look at, look at our nation here. I mean, it's going to serve as a constant reminder of the seeming absence of God from their presence. The symbol of God isn't there. Not only that, but the enemies of, of the Jewish people would have seen the demolished temple as proof of the utter helplessness of, of Israel's God to even help them out of this situation they found themselves in. You see, what gave the temple special significance was not the belief that God's presence would somehow be restricted to the building of this sort. Rather, its importance is, is, is derived from its association to God's name and, and God's person. And, and folks, the corollary to that is simply this. To dishonor the temple was to dishonor the Lord. To allow the temple to continue, you know, to be in ruins, Haggai is maintaining, really amounted to failure on the part of the people to honor God as their Lord. If you think about it, it's almost like they didn't care that God was homeless among them. That's the attitude that Haggai had toward it. However, by rebuilding the temple, honor would be brought back to God and would be a renewed evidence of God's presence with His covenant people. That's why Haggai, to Haggai, it was so important, let's finish the temple. And so he began preaching and encouraging the people. Now let me stop right here. Um, I know that we guide our church we guide our lives by the New Testament. And we correctly believe that the church is not a building, but it's the people who worship, who meet inside that building. But folks, I was raised by godly parents who had kind of maybe a different mindset about church facilities. Uh, that the building belonged to God, that it was His church building. And boy, every week I had drummed into me the understanding that uh, I had to show reverence in the house of God. I still believe that's true. You know, the statement that I made earlier was, uh, you know, I, I believe holds true to dishonor the temple of the Lord was to dishonor the Lord. And, and I think it's true, too, that to, in the same sense, dishonoring the meeting place of God's people is a way in which we can dishonor the Lord. And uh, so as a child, as a teenager, I wouldn't have been caught dead running in the church building or playing tag or chase in the church building or shouting loudly or anything like that. Uh, to me, it was a sacred place. And you know what? I still think it's a sacred place. 
I really do. And uh, because this represents for many people, believers and non-believers, a place where God is present. And that's why there isn't a month that goes by that somebody doesn't show up out at these glass doors. Maybe there are people I know, maybe there are people I don't know, but they just want to come in and they want to sit in this worship center for a little while so they can be in God's presence. Um, whether we want to admit it or not, folks, this is a sacred place. Enough rabbit chasing, okay? But I do want you to consider my words as we approach our understanding of the, the building, this beautiful building that God has given to us. And parents, uh, the, you ought to have a talk with your children about reverence for the Lord in, in the building of the Lord. Um, enough said, okay. So let's return. Let's look at the problems that the people faced. As you look back over that first message that Haggai uh, gave here, what you, you do is you discover the problems that God's people were facing. First of all, in verse 6, you have planted much, but harvest little. You eat and are not satisfied. You drink, still thirsty. Put on clothes, but you can't keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you're putting them in pockets filled with holes. Verse 9, you hoped for rich harvest, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Verse 10, the heavens withheld the dew and the earth produced no crops. Verse 11, a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grains and grapes and olive trees and all your other crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything. See, these exiles were going through some really hard times. I mean, they faced the challenge of scratching out an existence for themselves and, and for their families. And that must have been physically and emotionally draining if you, if you really think about it. Um, so any kind of enthusiasm on their part for rebuilding the temple probably was, was, you know, just kind of pushed aside by the ongoing turmoil of trying to make a living and trying to provide for a family. And so as a result, many of these people were not enthusiastic at all about taking on an expensive and demanding job like rebuilding the temple. They had thought more pressing matters on their hands. This isn't impressing. I've got something bigger I've got to take care of. <laughs> you know, as you look at the description of the conditions the people faced, um, it reminded me of the instructions that God gave to the children of Israel through Moses the prophet. Because what God said to the people was, you follow me and I will bless you. But if you don't follow me, if you fall away into idolatry, if you're unfaithful to me, then I'm going to send drought. I'm going to send crop failure. I'm going to send locust plagues. I'm going to make it so difficult for you to live in the land. And, and that was against the idolatry that was there. If you're unfaithful to God, if you're worshiping other gods, God says... This is what's going to happen to you. Well, here is Haggai, and he's pointing to those very same conditions, drought and crop failure and struggling to, to, to meet basic needs. And what I find it to be interesting here is uh, that the problem in Haggai's time wasn't idolatry. It was wrong priorities. 
So, and this is real important. I hope you're, hope you're following me. It wasn't a matter of having other gods before God. It was a matter of having other priorities before God. Now, let, me, let me repeat that because this is really important. The problem isn't just having other gods before God. The problem really comes in having other priorities before God. That held true for the returned Jews. And you know what? It holds true for us as well. Um, the last few verses in chapter 1 then give to us the, the response of the people and their leaders to the challenge that was given by Haggai. Man, they heeded his warning and, and they began to get enthusiastic about rebuilding the temple. It's going to take them another five years to work, but at least they've got to do the task. They're starting the job. They were obedient, and they began to reorder their priorities. And then in chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 through 9, contains the very next message of Haggai, in which he gives God's promise that God's glory is going to be on that temple and in the land. Look at in chapter 2 and verse 1 through 9, the solution for the returned exile. <laughs> <clears throat> chapter 2 and verse 1. Then on October 17th of that same year, the Lord sent another message to the prophet Haggai. Say to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of God's people there in the land, does anyone remember this house, this temple in its former splendor? And, and Quite probably Haggai I did remember, okay? Because he probably was that old at the time. He goes on and he asks, How in comparison does it look to you now? It seems like nothing at all. But now the Lord says, here's a word of encouragement. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people still left in the land. And now get to work, for I am with you, says the Lord of heaven's army. My spirit remains among you, just as I promised when you came out of Egypt. So do not be afraid, for this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. In just a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the oceans and dry land. I will shake all the nations, and the treasures of all the nations will be brought to this temple. I will fill this place with glory, says the Lord of heaven's army. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, says the Lord of heaven's army. The future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory, says the Lord of heaven's army. And in this place, I will bring peace. I, the Lord of heaven's army, have spoken. Now, this is a message of encouragement. And, and notice, Haggai delivered this on October the 17th. And that was a significant date because this would have been the very last day of the, of the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. That would be a, a festival that would celebrate, praise God, for the harvest that the people had received. And, and the fact that God is remembering His people and He's providing for His people. It would be an insur assurance to the people, God will meet the needs because your priorities have changed. Uh, another thing about this date it was on the very last day of the Feast of Tabernacles when Solomon dedicated the very first temple. And so Haggai is reminding the people that, 
of that first temple and encouraging them, spurring them on to, to faithfulness in rebuilding the second, uh, second temple. So he wanted them to know that if they would obey God and put him first in their priorities, God's going to honor their efforts and God will bring glory to the work of their hands in the rebuilding of this temple. So again, this is a message of encouragement that God is giving to the people. God's presence is going to be in this, in this new temple, just like it was in the former temple. And second, he's reminding them of that covenant relationship that he had with the people, that he would be their God and dwell among them and they would be his people. And then also, he's giving them God's promise of glory, filling that temple, even bringing it to a point where it is even more majestic than the, free, the first temple that was, was built by Solomon. And then finally, he's going to speak of God's provisions that in spite of the dire economy that they were living in, in spite of the drought and the crop failure and all of that, God's going to provide for them. These were great words of encouragement that Haggai brought to the people. And so he was able to give to this community a real vision of what they could accomplish for the glory of God. And they responded and they continued the work of rebuilding the temple. I think that these verses also contain some solutions to us when we talk about the fact that, man, it's so easy to let our priorities get out of whack, to get out of shape, because there is a solution here for us as well. You know, it's interesting that maybe a favorite verse that a lot of us quote is Matthew 6.33 that says, you know, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You see, what that verse tells us is Jesus Christ's thoughts concerning our priorities if we're going to follow him. Because think about it, each of us have, have an idea of what our priorities ought to be. Well, here is Jesus' take on what he thinks our priorities ought to be. And I think that when Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, it blew them away. Because you see, first century Palestine and really the times of, of Haggai had a lot of similarities, uh, things in common. Because in Jesus' day, um, putting food on the table, providing for your family, putting clothes on your back, finding shelter, those were major things that the people worried about. Because the taxation, the Roman taxation on the land was extremely heavy. The average Jewish household ate one meal a day. And if they were lucky, they got to eat meat at least maybe once a week. Maybe not that, that often. So times were very difficult in Jesus' day. And it would have been very easy for those people to worry and be fretting about, what am I going to eat? How, what am I going to wear? And, and so on. And here is Jesus. He realizes that a significant portion of the people's time, waking hours, is spent in worrying and working and trying to make ends meet in so many ways. It was tough and it was demanding to meet their physical needs. And it was always on their mind. And here's Jesus saying, hey, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. You have a higher priority. That's what he's saying to them. Don't focus on meeting your temporal needs and, and, you know, and then just offer God only what's left over. 
Jesus is saying, switch your priorities. Worrying about the ins and outs of daily living, folks, is not the path to authentic discipleship. It's not the path that Jesus Christ wants us to walk on. What Jesus is insisting in his disciple, to his disciples and really to us is that we're to seek eternal priorities first. We're to seek the kingdom of God. And when we do that, we can rest assured on the fact that God is not only aware of our daily needs, but he will abundantly supply those needs to us. You know, in that teaching there in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus illustrated this by calling attention to kind of the natural order of creation. Think about it. If, if God provides in abundance for defenseless birds and for vulnerable flowers, can you and I not expect that he's going to meet our needs as well? I mean, after all, we're the pinnacle of God's creation. Think about this. If then you and I can be assured that God will provide for us as we seek to follow Him and to do His will and, and to serve Him. Can't that give us greater confidence to serve Him more fervently and more actively? Uh, doesn't it give us room to make a difference uh, in, in the world in which we live? I think that so often, and, and you would agree with me, so often our priorities are all out of whack. Um, we think, man, somehow we've got to scratch and claw our way and we've got to put in extra hours and maybe get a second job and raise up a, a, you know, a cloud of dust with all sorts of motion and, and so forth just to make ends meet. And we work so hard and then we say, you know what, I work so hard, I deserve a little bit of recreation, a little bit of travel, a little bit of time off. And then if we've got any time left... If we got any money left, then we can kind of can give it to God. You know, we can spend a few minutes knowing God and serving God and trying to make a difference in the world. Somehow, we've got this idea that you and I have been placed in this world to take care of ourselves and our families. That's really all about me and mine. But the reality is it's all about God. We're here on this earth to serve God. He says, seek his kingdom first. That really means that every day you and I need to ask ourselves, God, how do you want to use me today? Um, how can I serve you today? You're first. My time is first for you. How can I, how can I serve you? Do you see that a change in our priorities could change everything? Not just in our own lives, but in our church, in our community, and for that matter, in our world. I live to bring glory to God and to make His name famous throughout the world. That's why God has left us here on this earth. When you accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, He could have taken you on to heaven right then. Because that's what his ultimate goal is. But he's got a reason for you and I here on this earth. And folks, it isn't to take up air and, and use up energy. It's to make him famous in our world. That other people might know him. See, the people in the 6th century B.C. needed to hear from Haggai that their priorities were all out of whack. 
We need to hear the very same thing in the 21st century A.D. That our priority needs to be God and, and God alone. You know, we may say that the kingdom of God is our priority. But you know what? Our actions are going to demonstrate. They're going to demonstrate that fact louder than, than our words will be. So what will your actions this week say about what your priority is? Is God's kingdom number one or is there something else that you're going to make the priority in your life? My friends, check out your priorities. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word from Haggai. People in his day and time needed a reordering of the things that were important in their life. We, we need to do that as well. You've blessed all of us in so many ways. And yet so many times we find ourselves running in all sorts of directions other than the direction that you want our lives to go. Teach us how to focus on you and on you alone. May reverence for you, for you and the things of you be important in our life. May you be the number one thing. In your name we pray. Amen.